And please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're continuing our series today on the book of Revelation, looking at the second letter of Jesus to the churches, in particular to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2 from verses 8 to 11. Great to have Calvin and Isabel back, congratulations, and uh, I hope you were, well, you're both smiling, you must have had a nice honeymoon, so perhaps we can just welcome Cal- Calvin and Isabel back. And in the last week I was up in Sydney for the <coughs> triannual General Assembly of Australia for the Presbyterian Church of Australia, and uh, a number of important decisions were made about uh, Pato Communion, about uh, eschatology. Uh, there was a, an apology made to those who have su- suffered abuse in Presbyterian institutions in the past. A new child protection policy was, was announced. Uh, quite a lot of decisions were made, important decisions, and I will endeavour to get a, a summary to you this week of the kind of decisions that were made. So um, it, it was a big week, but I, I think it was well worth going up. Thank you for those who were praying for the General Assembly. Uh, also, great to have Renier back as well. Brother, we've been praying for you constantly, you and Suzanne. It's wonderful to see you here today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 this morning. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak to us now by your living word. Give us those listening ears that we need. For Jesus' sake. Amen. In times of poor teaching in the church, and in times of great stress upon the church, Prophetic movements arise. We've seen this again and again in the history of the church. For example, the Donatist movement in North Africa in the fourth century, the Zwickau prophets after the Reformation, and the French prophets after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in the 18th century. So in these times when the, the teaching of the church is poor and and weak and depleted, but the church is under great stress. These so-called prophets arise with direct messages, they say, from God. It seems that there are times when the church feels a desperate need to hear the living voice of their Lord Jesus. There are times, especially when the church is under stress, when it hungers and thirsts to hear the the voice of their God and Saviour, Jesus, speaking to them. And so these kind of false prophetic movements come in to to fill that, that, that space. But we don't need these prophetic movements to hear the real living actual voice of Jesus speaking to us because we have his words here right in front of us. In this letter to the church in Smyrna, 
Jesus is speaking directly to you and to me. Unambiguously. That's the problem with the these so-called prophetic movements. When those messages come, you've got to uh, weigh them and you, you're not certain, is this part true, is this part false? There's no ambiguity here. We don't have to guess. We don't have to weigh these words. Every one of them is coming from the mouth of Jesus and he is speaking to us this morning. So as we work through this letter, I want you to be very aware, very conscious that Jesus is speaking to us and to you right now, right now. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. These seven churches, which we're looking at in the coming weeks, seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week we looked at Ephesus. Now we go north to the city of Smyrna. And Smyrna was a port and it was a very wealthy city, and it was famed for the magnificence of its public buildings. It was a a fine city, the city of Smyrna. And Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And this is laying a foundation for what Jesus is about to say to us. This is the foundation on which to hear every word coming out of this second letter. Jesus is the first and the last. What does that mean? It means that he is the eternal one. Jesus wasn't created. He is the creator. He is the God who made you and me and this universe. He's eternal. He was there before time began, and he will be there when time wraps up. And when Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he's not just saying that he was there before history and after history and through history. It's also a reminder that he has written history. The history of his creation was written by him. He is the sovereign Lord over all that happens in this world and in this creation. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. Look again at verse 17, where Jesus says, at the end of that verse, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. Hades, now listen carefully to this. Given that he's the first and the last, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. How can someone write down what's going to take place in the future? How can you write down the future? You can only do that if you are writing the future. If the future is in your sovereign hands, if you are the Lord over the future. And so when Jesus comes to the church in Smyrna and says, I am the first and the last, remember that he is the one, the sovereign Lord who is writing the story of your life, the life of his church, 
now and into the future. And he is the one who died and who came to life again. We don't come here to sing songs of praise to a dead man. We come to sing songs of praise to Jesus Christ who rose from the grave and who ascended alive into heaven. The living one. And he is the first fruits of those who died and came to life. Meaning that he will give life and has already given life to all those who put their trust in him. If you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you have eternal life. Now it's begun. What's the worst thing the world can do to you? The worst thing is the world can take your life. But the world, neither the world or the devil nor anyone can take away your eternal life. And so when this life ends, that's merely the doorway to eternal life. This is the foundation which Jesus lays as he comes to write and to speak to the church in Smyrna. He has written your future. You have eternal life in him already. Keep those things in mind as you listen to what Jesus is saying to you. He says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And that word affliction, it's a word that, that, that means to be under pressure. It's a word that means to be squeezed. Do you... Have a sense of that word? Do you ever feel that under pressure? Feel as though you're being squeezed like a, a tuber's, tube of toothpaste being squeezed? That's what that word affliction means. And Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. In other words, in this rich and prosperous port city called Smyrna, the Christians apparently stood out because they were afflicted and poor. Now, why were they poor? Why were the Christians of Smyrna poor? Well, here are some of the reasons. Some of them were being deprived of their, their jobs. Some are losing their jobs because of their Christian faith. And some of them couldn't rise up any further up the career ladder because of their Christian faith. And many were denied jobs with the, the government, the civil service, because of their Christian faith. There were certain jobs that were excluded from Christians. And some were poor because they were being fined in various imperial persecutions across the Roman Empire from time to time it was illegal to be a Christian. And so not only could you lose your job, you could be fined for being a Christian. And so some were, were, were paying fines and losing their goods. And this is another reason why Christians apparently were, were noticeable by their poverty in the city of Smyrna. And they were poor because they were also giving up their money and their possessions to help each other to help each other in their poverty. 
And so as, as Christians saw their brothers and sisters suffering, they didn't hoard their wealth, but they shared it with others. I, I'm pleased to see this, this little initiative, this little this baby step, if you like, stepping out to help one family in Pakistan. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to help our brothers and sisters in need wherever they are across the world. And so the Christians in Smyrna were noticeable by their poverty, not just because they were losing their jobs, not just because they were being fined, but because they were giving away their wealth as well to help their brothers and sisters who were afflicted. And this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to hold the goods of this world lightly. And when we see a brother or a sister who is not properly clothed, hungry, thirsty, in debt, imprisoned, we want to share. Jesus gave his life to us and we want to give our material possessions to our brothers and sisters and to those in need. Now, what you to notice there in verse 9, that Jesus says that he knows your affliction and your poverty. You're here this morning. Are you afflicted? Are you being squeezed? Are you under pressure? Are there heavy burdens on your heart? Are you grieving? Are you sad? Jesus knows, he says. He knows. Whatever you're sitting here this morning, whatever suffering you're experiencing right now, he knows. He's the one. Remember, how are the churches represented in the book of Revelation so far? As those seven golden lampstands. And is Jesus looking down from heaven at those, those seven golden lampstands? No. He's walking among them. He's with his people. He knows whatever it is that you are suffering right now. And he doesn't just know about it, he knows it in the sense that he suffered. He did suffer, didn't he? Born into deep poverty, obscurity, and then when he began to teach, he was maligned, slandered, his life constantly under threat, arrested, beaten, spat upon, scourged, mocked, crucified, mocked, even while he hung on the cross. He knows, he, he, he knows about suffering. Whatever you're suffering, he knows it. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet, he says, yet, you are rich 
You're rich, he says. How can he say that? How, how can he? And you, you, you might be sitting here now and, and you're suffering. And you, you're afflicted and, and you're, you are. You know about this problem. And you're thinking, how can he say that? How, how can he say that I am rich? And that word rich, it means to abound in good things. It means to be plentifully supplied. How can he say that? We are rich because he has given us a heavenly inheritance that cannot be taken away from us. And he has given us what, what has Jesus given us? What, what's the greatest thing he's given us? And he said he wouldn't withhold one single good thing from us. And what has he given us? He's given us himself. Himself. The spirit of Jesus living in the hearts of his people. And so the idea of a poor Christian is an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. These two words cannot go together. Poor Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you have the Lord. You have the Lord himself dwelling within you. And you have a heavenly inheritance, says the Apostle Peter, that can never perish, spoil or fade an inheritance kept in heaven for you. And these, these great riches, the Lord himself, these are not riches that are a future. They are riches that you have now. You have the spirit of Jesus now. God has given you his Holy Spirit now. It makes me think of that, that widow in the book of Kings, 1 Kings, the widow of Zarephath. Remember her? And the prophet Elijah comes to the widow of Zarephath and he says, look, can you make me a meal? And she says, all I've got is a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm just gathering a few sticks to cook, cook a last meal for me and my son before we die. And Elijah says, cook your meal. Share it with me. Well, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. In other words, you will have what you need. The Lord will give you all that you need. He will provide for your needs until the end of this, this, this family. And, and, and here you are this morning, straining, buckling under, under the pressure of fractured relationships, loneliness, perhaps financial pressure, perhaps anxiety for the future, perhaps sickness, perhaps your body is falling apart one piece at a time, day after day. You're rich. 
said Jesus. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. But you are abounding in good things because you have me. And I will ensure, just like that widow, that you will have enough. Just what you need for each and every day. Listen to what the Lord is saying to you this morning. What wonderful things he's telling us. I know you're suffering. You're rich. In fact, brothers and sisters, if we're going to grieve for poverty, then let's grieve for the real poverty of our neighbours who don't know the Lord. They're the ones that we should be weeping for. We live in a society, in this society, that has no answers to the very basic questions of life. The very basic questions, what am I? Who am I? What am I doing? What is my purpose in life? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What happens after I die? Our society has no answers to these questions. None. There's a deep, deep emptiness in our society. People don't even know why they're here. All they've got what pleasure or or a little bit of happiness can I grasp each day? It's all they've got. That's poverty, brothers and sisters. What an appalling poverty of spirit and heart and soul. So many believe they don't even have souls. Just atoms existing for a time before obliteration and nothingness. That's poverty. How rich you are in Jesus Christ. Never take for granted the riches you have in Christ. You have him. You know why you're here. You know that you were made in God's image. You know where you're going. You know that you have a good future. You know that after death you go to eternal life in the paradise of God. Riches abounding. How dare I take those things for granted? And I do. How dare I, I, I complain about this and that? And the Lord has given me, has given us all such riches. You are bound. We are plentifully supplied. But he goes on to say in verse 9, I know, I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And of course, the first Christians were being slandered by the Jewish people as being anti-Moses, anti-law. All of these accusations were brought against the Jews. And Jesus says that this slander was brought upon them by those who called themselves Jews and those who met in the synagogue, which is where uh, Jews met, 
in Still Me today, to sing songs of praise, and to pray, and to, to read the Torah. But the New Testament teaches us that a true Jew, and the Old Testament by the way, is not merely a physical descendant of Abraham. What's a true Jew? A true Jew is the person who has not the family tree linked to Abraham, but the person who has the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a true Jew. That's a true child of Abraham, someone who has the faith of Abraham in God's Saviour. And so Jesus calls those who rejected himself a synagogue of Satan. Now, that, that, that's a pretty harsh thing to say, isn't it? That's a pretty harsh thing to say. And it reminds me that sometimes being good and loving means, means saying the hard thing. I, I love the fact that Jesus didn't set out to be nice. Never set out to be nice to people. He set out to love people. And sometimes love and niceness uh, don't always go together. But this, I, I, I'm not here trying to open the floodgates to... Uh, uh, harshness and uh, okay, now we can all be severe with one another. Not at all. But I am saying that our Lord Jesus sometimes said that, well, always said the hard thing when the hard thing was necessary. Let me put it that way. And he calls those uh, Jews who were assembling in the city of Smyrna who rejected him, yeah, you're a synagogue, but a synagogue of Satan. And so the Christians were not to be overly concerned about their slander. It's a reminder also that if you live out the Christian life, if you live a life of repentance, we looked at that last week, if you live a life of faith in Jesus, if you live to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself, you will be slandered. You will expose yourself to awful words. And we're hearing a lot as the Christian community. We're hearing these words a lot. Bigot, hater, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, xenophobic. People apparently making good livings out of thinking up new phobias. Well, let's prove people wrong. We don't hate or fear anyone. We don't hate or fear anyone. We love. And, and, and love sometimes means look, if someone's about to walk off a cliff, Love speaks out, right? Stop! Can't you see where you're going? Can't you see where you're heading? 
Love speaks out. Love sometimes says the urgent words that needs to be said. But sometimes those words won't be well heard, well received. And expect, says Jesus, expect to be slandered, expect to be maligned. Jesus said it's not enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. Beelzebub, what did that mean? Beelzebub meant Lord of the Flies. It, it, it was a, a word coined for the devil himself, for Satan. Lord of the Flies. Lord of all that is foul and, and disgusting. And they called Jesus Beelzebub. And Jesus said, if you belong to me, don't expect anything different. Don't be surprised if people say hard things to you. Don't be surprised if people want to take you in the wrong way. Twist your words or put the worst possible aspect on your words. Don't be surprised. It's what they did to him and it's what they will do to all those who follow him. And when it happens, we don't, we never respond in time. And sometimes I'm ashamed. Don't you feel ashamed sometimes when you see how some followers of Christ behave and speak on social media and express so much anger and harshness no, we should not, never respond in time, but with love and grace. Jesus respond, responded with love and grace. Yes, he could say a hard thing, a hard time. And he spoke truth, always. But always from a heart of love and grace, for the purpose of winning people to himself. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution. It's that same word, by the way, as affliction in uh, verse 8, verse 9 I mean, same word. You will suffer persecution or affliction for 10 days. Now, just notice here that this suffering that Jesus talks about, he's not saying, look, watch out, suffering may be on the horizon here. You may have to suffer, some of you. No, he's actually saying, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It is coming, he says, it's coming. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution. Brothers and sisters, if we don't take those words seriously, then when the suffering comes, the persecution comes, we're just going to fall over. We're going to fall over. If, if, if we have this idea that the Christian life should be smooth and easy, 
then when the, the hardships come, we will fall over. And, and so we need to be still by these words of Jesus. He's saying suffering is a part of being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you will suffer. It is going to come. It is here now, in one way or another, expected. And then when it comes, when those hardships come, we won't collapse in a heap. What's happening? What's going on? Why is this happening to me as a Christian? How many have walked away from the Christian faith because hardships have come? Because they had this idea that, well, if I'm a Christian, then life is going to be easier, right? And so when the hardships come, they're disillusioned, they fall away. But if we know that suffering is a part of the Christian life, we'll be ready for it when it happens. And notice also that the suffering is not arbitrary, it has a purpose. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And suffering is always a test. It always tests our faith. It tries our faith. And it should make our faith stronger as a result. And how long is the suffering? It says here, you will suffer, suffer persecution for ten days. Now what does that mean? Why does Jesus say you'll suffer persecution for ten days? I'm thinking, have I had those ten days? Or are those ten days, am I in the middle of them right now? Are those ten days coming in the future? Why am I, what does it mean? This is where we have to remember that the book of Revelation, it's full of these significant numbers. Significant numbers. And the number 10 here in this context means you will suffer for a relatively short and definite period of time. A rel- that's, that's what 10 means in this context. A short, definite, and closed-ended period of time. 10 days of suffering. And in that suffering, says Jesus, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The suffering will end, brothers and sisters. The affliction will come to an end. The poverty, the slander, the pressure, it will come to an end. How will it come to an end? By our deaths. By our deaths. That's how it comes to an end. Perhaps death by accident, perhaps death by old age, perhaps death by disease, perhaps death by violence, violent death. (coughs) In every case, the trials and difficulties will last until death. And so Jesus says, be faithful unto death. These trials and afflictions and hardships and poverty and slander, you're not going to have a time of respite from it. He's saying, don't expect it. 
don't think, well, it's hard now, but surely you know, the wheels will turn and things will get easier. Yes, they will, but when you die. That, that, that's when the suffering ends, when we die. And that's why Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Remain faithful until the day you die and you will receive the victor's crown. And this reminds me so much of the Apostle Paul. And Paul was put to death, he was beheaded. A strong tradition told us in the year 64 AD in the city of Rome. And Paul knew that he was about to die. The sentence of death had been given. He saw his death coming. And what did he say? What did he say when he was about to die? He wrote to his, his protege, Timothy, and he said, The time has come for my departure. Now, the reason I'm reading these words is because they capture exactly what Jesus is talking about in his letter to Smyrna, and this should be how we think about our death, however it's going to come. This is how we should think about death. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. If we listen to Jesus, to what he's saying to the the Christians in Smyrna, then that's how we will talk about our death. The day of my my death is approaching. But I have so much to look forward to. I am looking forward to seeing my Lord Jesus face to face and he will give me that crown of righteousness, a righteousness that he won that he himself won for us with his perfect life and his death on our behalf. If we remain faithful unto death, then no matter how we die, our death will be a victory. Death becomes a victory. I I, I was talking before about the the, the, the deep poverty of our neighbours who don't know Christ. And death is nothing but a tragedy, or it's nothing but a the relief of oblivion after the pain of this life. An awful thing. But for the Christian, death is victory. It's a victory if we remain faithful to our Lord Jesus unto death. You know, there there were times in my past where I seriously thought about not being a Christian anymore. Is that you? Do you ever have those times where you think, wouldn't it be easier not to be a Christian? Wouldn't it have to be thinking about God all the time and how I'm supposed to live and what I'm supposed to 
to not be doing, I wouldn't have to be thinking about repentance. Wouldn't have to be thinking about loving my neighbor and loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Wouldn't. There were times in my past where I seriously considered, if I just let this go, wouldn't life become easier? Wouldn't a, a kind of burden be lifted and I could live a, a kind of free and easy life? And I, and I looked at non-Christians around me and I thought, they, they just seem happy. It would be like that. They don't care about all this stuff. It would be like that. The two things that stop me. How can I deny the resurrection of Christ? The historical event. It happened whether I like it or not. It happened. Jesus rose. He is the Lord of the universe. And he says, I will face him. Couldn't deny that. And secondly, how could I face death without him? Life is meaningless without him. And death is awful without him. And so, the Christians of Smyrna, and perhaps you, attempted to give up being Christians. The pressures, the slander, the poverty. Don't give up, said Jesus. Be faithful unto death, and the victor's crown is yours. Are you being afflicted today? Be faithful unto death. Are you facing poverty? Faithful unto death, brothers and sisters. Are people calling you names because you're a Christian? Give you a hard time because you're a Christian? Be faithful unto death, says Jesus. Is your reputation threatened because you're a Christian? Is your career threatened because you're a Christian? Be faithful unto death. Be threatened with overt persecution. And the day may come when you will be threatened with physical harm, fines, imprisonment. And young people here especially, that day is coming. I believe that that day is coming. Remember these words of Christ today. Be faithful unto death. Let me finish with this exhortation from our Lord, verse 11. Let's go with these, these words ringing in our ears. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. Thanks, musicians.